Live from WNUR News, I'm John Ferrara. You're listening to the 6 o'clock news on WNUR 89.3 FM HD1, Evanston, Chicago. It's Wednesday, October 4th. Tonight on WNUR News, Northwestern's Jewish community celebrates Sukkot. Scripted change, the writer's strike of 2023. Do Northwestern students prefer nighttime or daytime football games? And the latest edition of NU Sports Report. Those stories coming up tonight on WNUR News at 6. Thanks for tuning in. Sukkot is the Hebrew word for an outdoor booth or hut. Sukkot is the Jewish holiday of harvest and thanksgiving to God for protecting the Israelites during their 40 years in the desert. This past week, members of Northwestern's Jewish community gathered in Sukkot to celebrate Sukkot with good food, good company, and immense joy. Michelle Huang has the story. There are three Jewish holidays in September, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and their perhaps lesser-known sibling, Sukkot. Sukkot, the holiday of wandering, Thanksgiving, and outdoor shelter, began last Friday, and members of Northwestern's Jewish community are celebrating. For me personally, it's associated with a lot of good memories from my childhood, because it's also the fall, it's usually really nice weather, and you're getting outside, um, and a lot of times you have big meals with family and friends. Sukkot is a Torah-commanded holiday that commemorates the Israelites' time in the desert as they left Egypt for the Promised Land. According to Rabbi Jessica Lott, Northwestern's campus rabbi, Sukkot wields another meaning as well. The holiday celebrates that long pilgrimage, as well as the Israelites' agricultural background. The idea of building a sukkah, which really just means like a shelter, um, is that we're supposed to be in a temporary dwelling place for um, seven days and that's to mark that wandering time but it also connects with the idea that during the harvest time people would live out in their fields so it sort of is operating on two different planes at once one is our nomadic history and one is our agricultural history another main mitzvah or commandment of sukkot is to incorporate the four kinds of israel they are the etrog which is a citron the lulav which is a date palm branch the myrtle branch, and the willow branch. As Northwestern's Chabad rabbi, Rabbi Mendy Wegg explains, the four components represent unity during the holiday. Each one of the species has a different type of quality. The etrog has a good taste and good smell. Um, the date palm has dates, tastes yummy, but they don't smell. Myrtle smells good, but has no taste, and the willow has neither. And each one represents a type of person. Some of us are more academically um, Torah mind-driven, and some of us are more um, action-oriented. We focus on mitzvot and doing, doing things. Um, but the main idea is that we cannot be complete unless we have all four kinds. The historical roots behind this holiday run deep. Similarly, the ties between senior Max Rogal and Sukkot run deep as well, going back to when he was a kid. I don't know exactly when, how old I was, but I definitely remember being very young and like helping, in quotation marks, my dad build the sukkah, um, where, you know, I would just kind of just stand next to him as he did it, but, you know, I felt really important. However, once he came to college, the holiday started looking a bit different. A large part of Sukkot is spending time in the sukkah, but this became difficult while living in a dorm or an apartment. Really one of the main things is you're supposed to eat as many meals as you can in the sukkah, uh, but here, I, live in an, I lived in a dorm and now I live in an apartment, so um, I don't build my own sukkah. I come to either Chabad or Hillel, both have sukkot 
Um, so it's a little bit harder to try to squeeze in and trying to find as many meals as I can to eat in one of those two places. However, in the ways that really matter, there is not such a big difference between celebrating at home and on campus, Rabbi Wegg said. The idea of Sukkot is about unity and about how, to borrow a term, we're all in it together. And we cannot be complete without even, you know, one type of us or, or, or each, any individual person. So when we're locking that level, then it's everybody. It, it, there's no difference between celebrating with a community or a family because we are all one and all connected. Festivities continue on to this Friday. There are sukkahs at both Northwestern's Halal and Chabad for those who celebrate and for all general sukkah lovers. For WNUR News, I'm Michelle Huang. Moving on to arts and entertainment, in May, writers across the U.S. put down their pens and picked up their picket signs to strike against corporations for better wages and protections against AI. For nearly five months, Hollywood was at a standstill until an agreement was finally reached. Cara Totley has the story. Hollywood came to a stop in May when the Writers Guild of America announced via X, formerly known as Twitter, the WGA West and WGA East unanimously voted to call a strike effective May 2, 2023. Why? The strike resulted in the Guild being unable to reach a satisfactory agreement with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers during negotiations. Every three years, the Guild and AMPTP gather for contract negotiations, but the emergence of streaming services threw a curveball into these talks. Zaid Ayers Doran, a professor in the Radio, Television, and Film Department of Northwestern University and a longtime member of WGA, shed some insight on how exactly streaming affected writers. Being in a Guild means that you've sold uh, screenplays or teleplays. You're already somewhat successful in that field. It used to be that if you got to that point, you could kind of make a living through a combination of commissions, writers' rooms for television, selling screenplays. Another way writers made their money was through residuals. Residuals meant that if you got a show on the air or a film that was successful, every time it played, you got a little bit of money back from that, um, that airing. So a lot of writers, you know, they would use residuals to bridge the gap between other writing jobs so they could count on checks coming in if they'd achieved a certain level of success. But basically, the companies took the opportunity of the technological shift towards streaming to say, your contracts don't cover streaming, so we don't have to pay you anything if we put your content on streaming platforms. Going into this year's negotiations, the Guild wanted to address this problem along with putting in safeguards for writers from AI. However, AMPTP was not budging. Thus, the Guild walked away from the table and the strike began. Writer, producer, and WGA West Board of Director Molly Newsbaum ran the picket line at Paramount Studios. Newsbaum has worked on several shows, including Netflix's Umbrella Academy and the upcoming Disney Plus show, Daredevil Born Again. This was financially devastating for so many people. It was incredibly stressful. There were things about the summer that were just so, so hard. And as a captain, and especially as a lot coordinator, you're often the person that people could find and get to to express these concerns. Despite the hardships of picketing, Secretary and Treasurer of WGA West Betsy Thomas shared how the strike presented an opportunity for the Guild. I think it is, it's a real mistake that companies make when they let labor go on strike because it gives us a chance to actually bond and come together more than we ever have in the past. 
SAG-AFTRA's decision to go on strike in July didn't benefit companies either, leading to what Thomas would describe as a game of chicken between the writers and the companies. I think SAG-AFTRA's strike definitely helped give us greater leverage and force them back at the table because they're not shooting anything. They can't shoot anything. They can't promote anything. You know, everything had come to a screeching halt. Eventually, they resumed negotiations. On September 24th, it was announced the WGA and AMPTP had reached a tentative agreement on the 2023 minimum basic agreement. Three days later, the strike officially came to an end, marking the second longest labor stoppage in WGA history, totaling 148 days, just a week short of the longest strike, which took place in 1988. WGA West Board of Director Scott Alexander, who participated in the 1988 strike, noted a difference in reactions between the outcomes of the two. The problem is that when it ended, there was a bit of a, huh, a general shrug because nobody knew what we had really gotten and we really didn't get much. It was kind of a crappy one. So this one feels so much better because it's, it's very specific. These specificalities touch on safeguards against AI, companies paying for health insurance, studios having to provide writer streaming data, minimum staffing, streaming residuals, a guaranteed second step for screenwriters, and so much more. In terms of total value, the deal is $233 million a year, more than three times any other deal in the history of the Guild, an achievement Thomas hopes sets a precedent for future negotiations. Everything that we gained, we can build upon. Again, I think my hope for the, the town in general is that the success of our strike will change the way the other unions approach their own negotiations. Dorn expands on the potential impact of the writer's strike on unions and the labor movement. We'll see Hollywood and the industries that you know make entertainment, show business, continue to be a part of this large uprising of labor that's happening all over the country you're seeing right now. I think we're just one part of a much larger movement, which is basically saying over the last few decades, too much wealth has been concentrated in too few hands, and it's time for workers to take some of that power back. So what happens now? Thomas says that the writers are ready to get back to work. However, we can't shoot anything without the actors. You know, we can't produce television shows or movies without the actors. Thus, the writers' picketing days aren't over as they continue to strike with SAG-AFTRA in solidarity, but there is still work to be done for the writers, according to Newsbomb. I think that all writers feel passionately about ending free work and making sure we can do more to protect writers from being pressured into or asked to do any free labor. And I think we have a lot more work to do when it comes to watching what really happens with AI and generative AI over the next few years and making sure we protect the future of this profession. In that sense. Even though the fight to make a sustainable career is still ongoing, this strike has caused huge strides to be made and has sent a strong message to big corporations. We took on the biggest media companies in the world, and we won. So, you know, we can do it, anyone can do it. For WNUR News, I'm Cara Totley. And now, time for oddities. College football season is upon us, which left reporter Ella Barnes with the question, do Northwestern students prefer nighttime or daytime football games? Barnes pulled the Northwestern community to find out. The school year has just begun. The leaves are changing from green to orange. Sweater weather is in full swing. As students are settling into their new classes and clubs during the weekdays, their weekends are taken over by another activity, college football. On game day, students can devote their entire day to football whether that be going to the game itself or partaking in tailgate activities beforehand. The last two Northwestern football game start times varied widely, with one kicking off at 11 a.m. and the other starting out at a leisurely 6.30 p.m. 
This constantly changing schedule raises the crucial question. Do students prefer nighttime or daytime football games? I went out into the Northwestern community to hear what people had to say. My name is Casey Weissman. When music composition sophomore Casey was asked when he likes to go to football games, he said that he prefers daytime games. Here's why. Because the air at night, when I'm at like a, a base of sports game, <laughs> it gets pretty muggy and I don't like the grimy feeling of it. And I just usually get tired around that day. Environmental science major Kate Jeske shared a similar sentiment to Wiseman. I think daytime games are more fun. Is there a particular reason why? Mm, I don't know. I feel like it's just nicer to see in the daytime and then you have stuff you have time to do stuff afterward and if it goes late, it's not too late, you know, during the night. Hi, I'm Sydney Fenner. RTVF major Sydney Fenner began by saying that she preferred daytime games, but circled back around to realize that she actually preferred games in the early evening. I would say daytime, but like middle of the day. I don't like an early football game. Like last week, it was at like, oh, I guess this is nighttime. Last week it was at like 6.30. I thought that was a good time. I'd say late afternoon, early evening. Theater major Oliver Tam also preferred nighttime games. I think the... The night atmosphere makes for a better, better, better vibe in the football games. Fellow theater major Emma Nelson declared that she preferred daytime football games out of concern for Evanston residents' private property. I prefer daytime football games because it feels like the more authentic college experience. And sometimes I like to be in someone's yard by day rather than by night because it's nice and bright. I love nature. I can see all of my friends in the beautiful natural light of the sun. A very mixed bag of answers. But it seems like the consensus from this bunch is that daytime and early evening games prefer to nighttime games. One thing's for certain though, Northwestern students love college football. Reporting for WNUR News, I'm Ella Barnes. Welcome back to WNUR News. It's 6.14 p.m. Central Time. Today's sports report covers the best in Northwestern athletics. From the past week, Jonah Turner gives you the rundown on recent and upcoming Northwestern matchups. It's time for the first NU sports report of the year. I'm Jonah Turner, and let's get into it. After a fantastic win against Minnesota, Northwestern hosted number 6 Penn State this past Saturday, falling 13-41 despite going into the half 10-10. Northwestern made a fantastic start to the game, forcing a fumble on the kickoff and converting a field goal on the resulting drive. This was Penn State's first turnover of the year. A hard-fought first half was capped off by a Ben Bryant rushing touchdown, but the second half was immediately downhill as the offense stalled out and Penn State outscored the Wildcats 17-0 in the third quarter to take a commanding 27-10 lead. This continued into the fourth quarter with the Cats adding a consolation field goal. Ben Bryant threw for 122 yards with 14 completions from 25 attempts and was sacked five times, with the fifth sending him to the locker room with a shoulder injury. Transfer graduate student Cam Johnson had his best game of the season with 81 receiving yards, leading the team on the day. After an admirable and tough-fought game against one of the nation's best, the now 2-3 and three Wildcats host the Howard Bison this Saturday at 2 p.m. for homecoming. The game will be broadcast live on Big Ten Network. Women's soccer fell 3-2 to Nebraska on Sunday, despite a first-career brace from junior defender Emma Phillips, as an 85th-minute goal by Nebraska's Eleanor Dale doomed the Cats to a 7-7-3 overall record and 1-3-1 in Big Ten play. This continues to run of bad form, with the Cats falling to Michigan and Indiana in addition to a draw against Illinois over the last week. 
The Cats will seek to right the ship with their next match Thursday at 7 p.m. live on Big Ten Network as the Cats seek to improve their conference record as the Big Ten tournament approaches with an away game at Wisconsin. The Northwestern men remain undefeated after a 0-0 draw with Green Bay last night as the Cats failed to convert a dominant statistical performance into three points. The Cats dominated shots 18-4, forcing eight saves from Green Bay goalkeeper Tobias Yan. This result came off the back of a huge 2-0 away win at Maryland on Friday, and goalkeeper Jackson Wayman and midfielder Colin McCammy picking up Big Ten Player of the Week honors. The season continues as the Cats welcome Rutgers to Martin Stadium Sunday at 1 p.m. Volleyball fell in a close game 3-2 at home to Michigan State last Friday after a late surge fell just short. On Sunday, they traveled to West Lafayette, Indiana for a showdown with number 17 ranked Purdue. After falling behind two sets of zero, losing 17-25 and 15-25, the Cats roared back, led by graduate student, student Julia San Giacomo and her career-best 33 kills. After a narrow third set, which saw the Cats triumph 27-25, the Cats started the fourth set strong by going up 5-0 and weren't threatened again. In the, declining, in the deciding fifth set, the Cats overcame an 11-8 deficit behind San Giacomo's impeccable form to triumph 15-12. The win takes the Cats to 7-7 overall and 1-3 in the Big Ten. Next up is a Michigan adventure playing at Michigan on Friday, which will be live on Big Ten Network at 5 p.m. CT and Michigan State on Saturday. In field hockey, the Wildcats took their 11th straight win with a goal from Big Ten Offensive Player of the Week Lauren Wadas in the fourth quarter with under six minutes remaining in the game. Northwestern dominated the game, outshooting Michigan 15-2 in the first half, but couldn't find the back of the net. In the latest coaches poll, the Cats are ranked second in the nation, but face a huge test as they travel to face number 3 Iowa this Friday. The game will be broadcast live on Big Ten Network. The women's golf team finished second in the Windy City Classic yesterday, finishing nine strokes back of UCLA. In addition, golf alumni Matthew Fitzpatrick and Luke Donald won the Ryder Cup with Team Europe, defeating the U.S. 16.5 to 11.5. I'm Jonah Turner, and this has been the NU Sports Report. For more information, go to nusports.com. And how about a look at the weather for tonight? It's currently 75 degrees with isolated thunderstorms, but temperatures will be dropping to the high 60s overnight. Uh, the last bit of warm weather this year will continue into tomorrow with a high of 70 and scattered showers all day. Taking a look at the headlines, the House of Representatives searches for a new speaker after Kevin McCarthy's removal. In a surprising turn of events on Capitol Hill, McCarthy, the former Speaker of the House, has been removed from his position. The House of Representatives is now in search of a new speaker to lead the chamber. This development follows a recent and contentious debate within the Republican caucus, resulting in McCarthy's ousting. The coming weeks will be critical as lawmakers work to choose a new speaker who will navigate the complex political landscape in Washington. The trial of disgraced crypto mogul Sam Bankman-Fried began today with lawyers from both sides delivering their opening statements. The trial of SBF, a prominent figure in the cryptocurrency world, commenced today as lawyers from both the prosecution and defense delivered their opening statements. Bankman-Fried faces a range of charges related to his involvement in the crypto industry, including allegations of fraud and money laundering. This high-profile case has garnered significant attention and is expected to set important legal precedents for the rapidly evolving world of digital assets. Simone Biles leads the U.S. to a record seventh straight team title at the World Championships. Gymnastics superstar Simone Biles has once again demonstrated her unmatched talent, leading the U.S. gymnastics team to an unprecedented seventh consecutive team title at the World Gymna Championships. Biles' incredible skills and flawless routines have solidified her status as one of the greatest gymnasts in history. Her remarkable achievements continue to inspire and captivate fans worldwide. Evanston kicks off Domestic Violence Awareness Month as local organizations host programs and events. 
The City of Evanston has launched Domestic Violence Awareness Month with a series of programs and events aimed at raising awareness and providing support to those affected by domestic violence. Local organizations are coming together to address this critical issue through workshops, seminars, and community initiatives. This month-long campaign seeks to shed light on the challenges faced by survivors and promote resources for prevention and intervention. And Fat Bear Week is happening, and the online voting is now open. It's that time of year again. Fat Bear Week has officially kicked off, and online voting is now open. This quirky annual event held in Alaska's uh, Katmai National Park celebrates the impressive size and strength of the park's brown bears as they prepare for hibernation. Participants from around the world can cast their votes for their favorite fat bear in a playful competition that has become a viral sensation, highlighting the beauty of wildlife, conservation, and the natural world. That's all for WNUR News at 6 p.m. For more news updates and reports, follow us on Twitter or X, uh, WNUR News, or you can listen to these and other WNUR News stories on our website, WNURnews.org. That's WNURnews.org. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Our producer today is Jesse Chen, and our reporters are Michelle Huang, Kara Totley, and Ella Barnes. From all of us here at WNUR News, thanks for listening. I'm John Ferrara, and catch our next newscast on Friday, October 6th at 6 p.m. Now, back to scheduled programming.